Welcome to Midday Magazine for Friday, July 28th. I'm Hannah Floor. The community gym portion of Petersburg's Parks and Recreation Center closed on Monday as the local borough began fixing sewer lines at the site. Residents won't be able to use the gym, weight room, racquetball court, and other facilities until likely mid-September. As KFSK reports, the Petersburg borough is paying for the fixes through a fund for unexpected maintenance projects. The lobby of the Petersburg Aquatic Center, usually home to decorative fabric jellyfish and a few kids struggling to put socks on damp feet, is now crammed with weight machines and treadmills. It's an attempt to provide a few of the services from the other side of the building that's now closed. The gym and workout areas are blocked off for sewer line repair. Petersburg Borough's Parks and Rec Director Stephanie Payne says that the plumbing issues are long-standing. You know, it started with one toilet not flushing and then the water fountain wouldn't drain and then we're starting to see backups, you know, further down the line, the sewer line, um, over towards the aquatic center. And so it's just been getting worse and worse. Last fall, the center did an assessment of the problems. It turned out that the underground brackets that hold the sewer pipes are failing, which is causing the pipes to buckle. Payne says it has taken since last September to get all of the paperwork and contracts in order for repairs. Part of that process included getting funding from the Petersburg Borough. Because the repairs were not scheduled, they were not in the annual budget. The money had to come from the Borough's Property Development Fund, which is used specifically for unexpected municipal maintenance. The Borough has contracted with Ketchikan Mechanical Incorporated to do the work at around $500,000. That's more than half of what was in the fund. But borough manager Steve Giesbrecht says that even if another big repair project comes up this year, the borough has various resources to make sure it gets done. In general, most of those type of projects are within our means to pay for it. You know, it doesn't mean it's pleasant. We don't like writing checks that we don't have to. Um, You know, it's taxpayer money and we want to try to use it well. But, you know, we also want to keep our Parks and Rec Department operational and having bathrooms and showers is kind of a big part of that. While Ketchikan Mechanical Incorporated is doing the job, they are subcontracting with Rainforest Construction, a local company. Payne says having locals work on the project makes the whole thing run more smoothly. That's the cherry on the on the Sunday. You know, it's I walk back there. I know most of the guys that are back there working. I can communicate with them. It's like having my friends working on the building. The crew began work on Monday, July 24th, as soon as the paperwork was in order. Payne says summer is the slowest time for the community center, and she wanted to make sure that the bulk of the work was done during the slow months. But the finish date of September 15th means that school kids, who use the community gym for P.E., will have to go elsewhere for the first couple weeks of school. Payne says that Parks and Rec will put in extra effort to help find alternatives for the kids. You know, if we need to jump on deck and help, you know, if they choose to bring all the kids down to the aquatic side for those two weeks, we can jump in and help and just make it right, make it work in any way that we can. The sewer line work involves tearing up the flooring in some of the locker rooms. Parks and Rec doesn't have enough replacement tiles to redo the floors, so they're getting a makeover with Viking blue epoxy flooring. That makes Payne extremely happy. That'll be a nice change and easier to clean. Stoked, stoked. Patrons will be able to see those new blue floors when the community gym reopens. Payne is hopeful that the work will be done before the hard end date of September 15th and says that the public will be notified if that is the case. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. 
The State Board of Education heard nearly three hours of public testimony yesterday over a regulation to limit high school girls' sports in Alaska to athletes assigned female at birth. About two-thirds of the testimony was against the regulation. The board did not take action on the proposal and tabled the item to be taken up at a later meeting. Board Chair James Fields said another meeting should be held to answer any additional questions. Trying to create an excellent education for every student every day when you have a conflict in the middle of it, trying to navigate that needle isn't easy. So um, I think we're at the point where we need to take a little bit extra time. Ahead of the meeting, the board received over 1,400 pages of public testimony. Kuba Gazenda is a runner and coaches high school and college athletes in Fairbanks. He told the board he opposes the regulation. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of speculation and what are scenarios, but there has not really been a documented wave of transgender athletes dominating any sport at any level across the world. Melinda Lindstead of Juno said she was in favor of the proposal and would support creating a third category for trans and gender nonconforming student athletes instead of allowing them to compete with boys and girls. There are reasons that male and female divisions were initially developed namely safely, safety and fairness. We are here to have as even a playing field as possible for all of our children. The regulation would change athletics for all Alaska school districts except the Matsu District, where a ban on trans athletes passed in June of 2022. Alaska Attorney General Treg Taylor signed a letter last month supporting states' rights to access medical information about abortion and gender-affirming care. The letter was addressed to the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services and was signed by 18 other attorneys general. In a response to the Biden administration's proposed protections of patient privacy when crossing state lines for medical care. The letter says the protections would obstruct states' ability to enforce their laws on abortion, and it airs concerns that the proposed protections might advance, quote, radical transgender policy goals if applied to gender-affirming care. Rose O'Hara Jolly is the Alaska State Director for Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates. They say the Attorney General's job is to protect all Alaskan rights, including the right to abortion. Releasing medical records is not a state's rights issue, it's a personal rights issue. And we have the right to speak with our medical professionals without government interference. Alaskans' rights to abortions are protected in the state constitution. In an email, Taylor acknowledged this. He said the letter is about preserving states' rights in the face of federal overreach. O'Hara Jolly says Planned Parenthood has already gotten many calls and emails from Alaskans worried about their rights to ha- that their rights have changed. They worry the letter will mean people don't feel comfortable being open with their medical care providers. Our biggest concern is that now people will be afraid to talk to doctors and medical professionals or will think that they are unable to get care. What he's done has put the health and safety of all Alaskans in jeopardy. In his email, Attorney General Taylor said that the state will not seek out medical information from other states. And he said Alaska is not planning to provide medical information to other states, even if medical privacy laws change. Thousands of Alaskans brought relics to this month's taping of Antiques Roadshow in Anchorage. That's the long-running PBS television show 
where experts appraise everything from family heirlooms to thrift store finds during stops in cities around the country. It was the show's first visit to Alaska, and a handful of Kodiak residents made the trip with their own items. Kirsten Dobra spoke to, to one of them and has this story. Earlier this month, Charlie attended the Antiques Roadshow taping with his brother and niece. Antiques Roadshow asked us to only use first names for show participants. Charlie brought a vibrantly colored woven blanket with fringe and stripes adorned with delicate details. Now, this is the picture of me buying this blanket here and in the marketplace. He's pointing to a picture of himself carrying canteens of water with coconuts slung over his shoulder. The year is 1968, and the blanket is loosely wrapped around his shoulders. He was near the border of East Timor and Indonesia in Southeast Asia. Charlie, a self-described wanderlust, has stacks of photos from his travels. He says he haggled for the item and doesn't even remember what currency he ultimately paid in. Another photo shows some of the local villagers wrapped in similarly designed textiles. This is what got the antique roadshow guy really excited. Charlie ended up making it to the green room for an interview and appraisal of the artifact. That doesn't mean he'll make it on the show, and he didn't want to give away too much in case he did. 2,500 people attended the taping in Anchorage, the first time in 28 seasons the show visited Alaska. Prospective roadshow attendees needed to enter a lottery for a ticket, and each ticket holder was allowed to bring two items. You go up and you wait for a little while to get in, and then finally you wait some more inside. And when you get inside, there's this one lady there that determines... Which category do you have? Other attendees were lugging around all kinds of things, toys and textiles and big and small pieces of art, to the different tents for appraisal. Charlie called the whole thing a smooth operation and says he was impressed with the expertise and efficiency of the production. He's looking forward to watching the show when it comes out sometime early next year. And he says getting to go to a taping of the show at all was a bucket list experience, whether he makes the final cut or not. You meet so many nice people and and intelligent people and appreciative people and artistic people. You know, it's an experience. It's like it's like being in the middle of a beehive, you know. And regardless of appraisal value, he says the blanket is a priceless keepsake from his travels. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. For transparency, Charlie also helped found Kodiak's KMXT in the 1970s. The Mendenhall Glacier is one of Southeast Alaska's most visited tourist attractions. But midway through the region's busiest ever tourist season, it's already reached its capacity for commercial tours. As Katie Anastas reports, tourists are now using Juneau's city bus to get there. If you're visiting Juneau on a cruise and want to see the Mendenhall Glacier, you'll probably want to book a tour. Tour buses take passengers straight to the glacier in about half an hour. You could take the city bus. At $2 per person, it's a fraction of the price of a commercial tour. But the closest stop is one and a half miles away. Those were the factors Ron Verhill and his wife Lucy were weighing when they got off their cruise ship this morning. I wanted to take the city bus because I want to save some money. And Lucy wanted to, um, she wanted to take a tour bus. So we're still kind of not on the fence about which way we're going to go. But they quickly learned that the tour bus was not going to be an option for them. So by late afternoon, they were on the city bus. It had taken up most of their day in Juneau. Well, the bus is a bit of a milk run, but uh, it was okay. It was a, quite a long walk, that long walk, and uh, 
or one and a half kilometer or miles. The U.S. Forest Service allows more than 500,000 people to visit the glacier on commercial tours each season. Usually, companies have enough permits to sell same-day tours throughout the summer. But now, halfway through what's shaping up to be Juno's biggest tourist season yet, they've already sold out. That's driven more tourists to take the city bus. And the higher demand is taking a toll on Juno residents. Drivers report leaving up to 29 people at stops because their buses are too full. Alexandra Pierce is the city and borough of Juno's tourism manager. Yeah, I've heard anecdotally about people not being picked up at Fred Meyer with their groceries, say, or somebody missing a flight because they were relying on the city bus to make their their plane connection. But Pierce says the city can't prevent tourists from taking public transportation. Like if you or I go to New York and ride the subway or London and ride the tube, you know, we wouldn't get a little stop on the turnstile that says, oh, you don't live here. And it's the same thing here. Public transit is available to everybody and needs to be available to everybody. If Capital Transit has spare drivers, it can add more buses to popular routes. But with a statewide driver shortage straining both the city and tour companies, that can't happen often enough to meet the demand. At a Juno Assembly meeting earlier this month, member Michelle Hale urged city leaders to find a solution. Often um, the people that ride the bus are some of our most poor citizens, um, not always, of course, um, and and might uh, be might not have access to even figure out who to make that complaint to. In an effort to reduce pressure on the bus system, the city has issued additional permits for the parking lot by the Brotherhood Bridge. Tour companies are taking tourists there to see the glacier from a distance. The city has also hired a consultant to help figure out how capital transit can meet the needs of residents and tourists during the season. Pierce says the strain on public transportation points to key challenges Juno faces when it comes to tourism. We have a shore excursion supply and demand problem in Juneau. Um, if I could characterize simply our two biggest tourism issues, it's a volume problem. There are just a lot of people and there's a supply and demand problem that we are running out of having enough things for those people to do. We've always been a destination where there's a lot of options and a lot to do, but we just have too many people now. She says the consultants should have recommendations ready for city leaders next month. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. For KFSK News, I'm Hannah Floor.